Some jobs are absolutely thankless. You work your entire life, and then you die. And it's almost as if people don't even care. No matter what job you were thinking of, I was talking about bees. Bees are one of the most efficient pollinators on this planet, and they work incredibly hard for a few short weeks of their life to do a job that we would not be doing good on this planet without. And you know the bees are struggling. You've heard it a thousand times. Save the bees. Well, today we are going to talk about how we can save the bees. My name is Louis Colavertolo, and I am a graduate student at the University of Guelph, trying my best to get a food science PhD. And in the meantime, when I'm not buzzing around the lab, I like to interview graduate students from all different kinds of walks of life who have a lot to say about what they study and why any of that matters to us. So today we are talking to the queen bee herself, Sage Handler who studies a bee that's maybe a little bit less popular and doesn't make honey, but is still really incredibly important. Not only is she going to tell us about these little bees that are potentially hiding in the grounds or cut flower stems, but she's also going to give us a few tips on how we can help the bees. But while you're listening, be mindful, that wasn't even a very good pun, be mindful that we are graduate students and we don't know everything, which is why the name of the show is called We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Sage. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing all right over here. Could you tell us where and, and what your educational history is? Absolutely. So it's all taken place here at the University of Guelph. I'm uh, currently in my second year of my Master's of Environmental Science. And before I started that, I did my undergrad in ecology, which also falls into the environmental science area. And I was lucky enough to do it in the co-op stream. So I got some job experience while I was learning as well. Oh, so you've been you've been in Guelph for a while. Yeah, this is my seventh year of living here. Yikes, seven years. That's like so much commitment. It, it like makes me, my, my heart is beating fast. Well, I lived in five houses over that time, so, you know, it wasn't like I was <laughs> super confused. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, you started in ecology. Now you're in environmental sciences. I'm going to just say it right here. I don't even honestly understand what the difference is. That's because there hardly seems to be one. I, I, the biggest difference, I mean, there are two different undergrad programs, and environmental science kind of looks at abiotic and biotic factors, the living and the non-living equally, whereas ecology tends to focus more on the living things. All right, so environmental science, we're including things like rocks in this? Environmental science is love soil, so, you know, oh, all up in that dirt. Big fan. Yep. You guys are big dirt fans. Big. <laughs> Careful who you say dirt to, though, because some people don't like that. Oh, oh no, am I going to offend the soil community by saying dirt? You may want to be careful. All right, it's official. Dirt is on my list of no-no words. We're going to erase <laughs> that from my vernacular. All right, okay, so we have soil and animals and plants and all of those kinds of things. Could you give us a, a brief, just kind of touch on what in the world you're doing right now? Yeah, so in the whole world of ecology, I am looking at bees and not just any kind of bees. I'm focusing on a type of wild bees called cavity nesting bees. And so as opposed to honeybees, these bees are solitary. So they don't live in nests. They don't make honey. They don't have queens. 
but they're all over the place and they're really important for pollination, but we don't know enough about them. So really broadly, I'm looking at where these cavity nesting bees are living across Canada, what kinds of food they're eating and how they're interacting with wasps and other parasites. All right. Save the bees. That's like, that's a humongous topic right now. Oh yeah. Right. And, and, and we're, we're, we're preaching the bees over here. So, uh, okay. I think I've answered one of your questions already. You said you want to know where they live. I'm going to guess cavities. Yes. So these bees like to live in cavities, like, uh, uh empty, empty stems of plants and holes in wood or in your brick walls. They're pretty, they, they like a lot of things. But more broadly, I'm wondering uh, where they're living in regards to the landscape. Like, how are they feeling in a city versus in the countryside? Uh, that's that's kind of more what I'm looking at. I think, and this is new to me, I did not know that there were solitary bees out there. I just, I hear the word hive mind, and I assume they all live in hives. No, actually. So Canada has, I think, 927 species of bees. And that's a lot of bees types. It's a lot of types of bees. And only one of them is the honeybee. So that leaves 926 other types of bees, 95% of which are solitary. So things like bumblebees are also social. They live in nests that are a lot smaller than honeybees, but they, they have a queen and, and they do their thing socially. But 95% of bees are living the solitary life. Wow, that's that's like unbelievable. That is so many. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So, okay, you said 95% of the different types of bees are solitary. Do you happen to know off the top of your head, uh, like, what the proportion in numbers of bees are solitary? Oof. 95% of 927. Uh 927? How many bees are in Canada? I don't know. I could sniff this all out. Don't worry. It's a lot of bees. I don't know the number. (laughs) There's a lot of bees. All right. right, Okay, everyone. There's a lot of bees in Canada. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So, so, all right. There are bees, and this is this is all new information for me. I'm learning all of this firsthand. Uh, there are bees that don't live in hives. They just kind of exist all over. Yes. So... I'm studying the cavity nesting ones in in the tree stem and the plant stems and the holes in wood and things. But most of our solitary bees are actually ground nesting. So uh, if you think of like what an anthill would look like, that could also be the entrance to a solitary ground nesting bee home. So they'll dig a little tunnel underground and then they'll make little cavities off of the main tunnel and they'll lay their eggs there. And it's only one female bee doing all the work because they're solitary. So she's digging and she's foraging on the flowers and she's laying the eggs. It's all her. So she's a single independent woman and she's having it all. You know it, except for it all happens in like a two week lifespan. So, mm. Oh, oh, that's right. I always forget that like uh, insects are, you know, very short lifespan. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, she has this little studio apartment in the ground. Or well, well, yours don't, yours don't, you are not in the ground. You have uh, the cavity one, so they're they're moving into an already built apartment. Yes, pretty much. Okay, and they are responsible for foraging. They're responsible for kind of making the home, uh, and I'm assuming they lay eggs. Oh God, I really don't know. Do bees lay eggs? Bees lay eggs. Yes. So. Okay. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I knew they weren't mammals, but I didn't know if it was something in the middle. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so they'll each, they'll, a female bee will, uh, well, first she has to mate. So, you know, the male bees come in somewhere. After that, they're basically gonzos. 
But once once a female bee is mated, then she'll find a nice home. So she'll check out the, the hollow plant stems, holes in your brick. She'll find one that she likes. And then every cavity nesting bee will use a different type of nesting material. And, and so she's not just dropping her eggs right on that brick or right into that plant stem. She's got, uh, given them a nice cozy bed. And that can either be using leaves from trees or soil or rocks even microplastics apparently there's some new research coming out on that uh, and then so she'll she'll lay out the leaves or whatever she'll lay a single egg in that little packet and then she'll make a wall and so each egg is kind of in its own bed all in a row oh okay uh so it sounds akin to like how a bird makes a nest well i, I think of a bird nest of being like round with the eggs all kind of together in this case they're all in a row and so this has some implications for hatching order and things and, and also for, you know, the spread of different fungal infections and things because they're all in a row and when they hatch, they have to kind of crawl through each other's nests. Oh, this is really fascinating. So it's not just a like, oh, those silly bees, they do this thing in a row. You guys are really curious about why or, or what this row does. Yeah, it has a lot of implications, especially... It, it turns out in terms of bee hotels, which have become pretty popular in the last few years for people to attract bees, uh, maybe help them out with their habitat loss. But it turns out that if you have a big bee hotel that attracts a ton of bees, it also attracts a ton of parasites and it can make it really easy for uh, funguses to spread throughout all of the bee nests. So it's definitely something that's important to consider, especially how popular these bee hotels are right now wow interesting right because you know you put them all close together that means their their transmission rates are going to go up we learned a lot about transmission rates in the in the past year sure did. We? <laughs> uh, so you uh specifically study what about these cavity bees well i'm looking at what they're eating mainly in terms of as it relates to where they're living so i'm going to be using some landscape analysis. I know where exactly each of my bee hotels is set up all across Canada. And uh, I'm going to be seeing what kinds of flowers they foraged on versus where they lived and hopefully see some interesting things about what they're eating. Yeah. And, and why do we care what they're eating? Well, we care because we want to make sure that they can keep eating. So some bees are really specialized and they'll only forage on one kind of flower, whereas other bees are generalists and they'll eat anything. But we are kind of concerned that climate change is going to be changing things for these bees in something called phenotypic mismatch, where maybe the bees hatch a lot earlier or the flowers bloom earlier, which means that the flowers that the bees could normally feed on aren't there at the time that they hatch. So we don't know enough about these bees in, in the past, and we're just kind of trying to play catch up and figure out what are they eating right now? Maybe in 10 years, we repeat the study. Have Is it changed? Are they still able to eat the same things? So that's a little bit beyond the scope of my master's, but I'm hoping to at least create a baseline for that research to happen. All right. So you're, you're doing some fundamental work, right? We don't have the answers to these somewhat basic-ish questions. I'm not going to call them basic questions, yeah. but basic-ish questions. Um, and you're trying to figure out what these guys are wanting to eat. And I think this, this to me sounds important, uh, because you said that these guys only are living for like two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of these bees will hatch in the spring and they'll mate, they'll lay their eggs and then their life cycle is done. And then those eggs will spend the time in their nest. They'll develop into larvae. And then some species, the larvae will 
overwinter as larvae in that tube, or in some species, they'll finish developing fully into adults by the fall, and then they'll overwinter as adults. So really, you know, if the, if the mama bees aren't able to do their thing in their two-week lifespan, then it's kind of it for that year for that bee. All right. So the bees, okay, let's say they, they get out of the larva stage and then they got that, that bee, I'm, I'm an actual bee phase. Yep. <laughs> is, there, is there a phase for that? What? Adult. I don't know. <laughs> adult, adult, there you go. All right. Fair. Yeah. That's, that's a lot better than my explanation. I'll give you that. So, all right. So they're in this adult phase and, and this adult phase for all bees lasts two weeks or is it just that mothering phase that lasts two weeks? So... I'm talking like, so the adult phase can last for months, but I guess for a lot of those months, they might be dormant because they can't be active in the winter. There's no flowers, it's too cold. So they could be dormant for a few months, fully developed, but then once the temperature hits a certain average, they'll, they'll see that internal cue and they'll know it's time to hatch, become a real bee, and, and that's when they'll, uh, that beginning of the active phase will start. Okay, so... They can last longer, and it's not necessarily determined exactly what time of year they're going to be in that adult phase. For some, it's uh, right, you know, after the larva stage. For some, it's after they do sort of a winter hibernation. Yeah, so different species have different techniques. I mean, so I, I've been um, dissecting my nest boxes to identify the bees, and some of them are coming out as, you know, white blobby larvae, and some of them are already fully developed in wait for the winter. So it totally depends on their life history strategy. Okay, so then when you uh, take one of your houses down that's out in the wild or, or whatever, uh, do you only find cavity bees? Or do you find like a whole bunch of varieties and you just care about the cavity bees? So I am only looking at the cavity nesting bees and wasps. And bee and wasp larvae look very similar, so I don't really know what I'm putting into a tube at that point, unless they are in the adult stage, in which case I can usually tell what I'm looking at. Uh, I also get way too many earwigs nesting in here. Spiders don't love those ones as much, um, but no. you know, part of the game. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, you're gonna get an arachnid or two. Just a couple. Uh, look at that. I just used a science word. I right that they're not bugs. They're arachnids. Correct. Right? Yep. Too many legs. I'm I'm kind of like I'm gonna get an honorary degree in ecology <laughs> pretty soon with all of these things between my B B being a B stage and arachnids I got this full marks. All right, so here now I think we're gonna talk about a controversial topic: wasps. Yeah, you know wasps have a bad rap, and I think that most of it comes from the yellow jacket because yellow jackets can be kind of rude. Uh, especially in the fall, you know, you're trying to have your picnic. And by that point, maybe they know they're going to die because wasps do not survive the winter. So at that point, they're just kind of going for whatever they want. They want to eat part of your watermelon. They're going to do it because they're going to die anyways. That paired with the fact that they can sting multiple times really does make them, you know, they're pretty bad in the public eye. But the thing is, there are so many more types of wasps than just the yellow jackets. And unfortunately, I don't have the number for Canada. That's, you know, a bit of a bias towards the bees. But there are so many types of solitary wasps who don't live in these nests. And, and they do a great ecosystem service of being great predators. So, you know, some, some integrative pest management research is happening on bringing in these wasps that can then kill farm mites. Uh, and I don't really know much about that side of things. But you know, they're really important for the ecosystem as well. So wasps, and I 
I hate myself for saying this, but wasps are like the true definition of YOLO. I mean, the yellow jackets when they get there. Yep. They're, you know. They're ready to like just die yep. for it. And they show it. That's terrible. <laughs> and they, they show it. They're bold. They are yep. such bold insects. Yep. But you can't classify them all by that specific thing. You gotta, you gotta give, you know, they're like the crazy cousin, but the rest of the family, you know, they're respectable. They're doing their job. They're not attacking people, so. All right, so that uh, this is a beautiful message. Like, I didn't expect that we were going to go into, like, the political side of wasps. But, uh, so so not all wasps are bad. No, all creatures have some kind of use in the world. And, unfortunately, the yellow jackets, which look a little bit evil, have really overshadowed the, the other wasps that have such a great use and also are not nearly as violent. Hmm. Right? We got peaceful wasps out there. That's good to know. Absolutely. All right, so let's go back to bees, because, like, you're a, you're a bee person. We're not going to talk too much about wasps. All right, you find out what these bees are eating, and I I feel that it is, it is something that everyone knows. I don't think that anyone who's listening to this program is going to be like, why do we need bees? But could you just give us, like, a quick, just a quick nugget of information of why bees are so important? Sure. So... There's a couple popular stats. Uh, one in three mouthfuls of food that the common person eats are pollinated by insects. And bees are the most efficient pollinators, so they do a lot of that work. You know, you wouldn't have your uh, chocolate, your almonds, your blueberries, your apples without insect pollinators, many of which are bees. And so, you know, for us humans, we really care about that because we love to eat. You know, on the other side, Bees also do the same service for all of our flowers, not all of our flowers, many of our flowers. And and so, you know, in terms of keeping our ecosystems safe, there's such a large keystone part of that that we need to care about that as well, not just ourselves. Oh, OK. This is this is really good information. Right. And and I love that stat. One in third of all mouthfuls of food. That is so that's so amusing. But uh, and I know so little about plant science. I really do. Uh, the bees don't need to pollinate every single flower. Not every single uh, plant out there requires a bee. Yeah, all kinds of, all angiosperms, sorry for the science word, um, oh, God. are Ooh. flowering plants, and so they require some kind of pollination. But a bunch of them use wind pollination. So, I mean, even if bees went extinct, we wouldn't starve because things, all most of the grains, so corn and wheat, they don't need bees. Bees don't care about them. They do it with the wind. Uh, and there are also some plants that use rivers, running water to pollinate. They're a little bit more rare, but it happens. And so I think it's something like 87% of flowering plants or so require insect pollination. So it's not all of them, but many, many flowers need the bees. It'll be a boring holiday dinner mm -hmm. if you don't have bees. Like we, will, we won't starve, but we're going to be eating a lot of like grains yeah. and gruels it's gonna be like puritan times all over again no pumpkin pie it's all gone oh no pumpkins are flowering and they need oh gosh this is all right everyone save yep. the bees <laughs> not, not that i was like against it before <laughs> okay so we know that the bees need to eat because bees need to sustain their energy so that they can pollinate uh but is the bee like all right today i gotta pollinate this 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 or is the pollination kind of like a side effect of what they're doing good question it's a hundred percent a side effect and so you know it's this it's this beneficial relationship for both the bees and the flowers 
but it's also, you know, the bees aren't there to help the flower out. The bees are just there really to get the nectar. And so plants produce two, two things that happen with pollination. And so they produce the pollen, which is where the reproductive organs are stored. And they also produce nectar, which is like a sugary liquid. And the nectar doesn't actually have anything to do with the plant's reproduction, but it's kind of like a lure to get the bees in there. So most of the time, the bees are just there to drink some nectar, but they have these really hairy legs that get the pollen stuck all over them. So they can't really help it. Then they're just flying from flower to flower, gathering nectar, and they're also transferring pollen in the process. Yeah, and I and I love those pictures of the bees with like pollen all over their butts. Mm-hmm. And, and they got them like big. They got them big behinds, and they're just like all the little pollen specks. And then I ever see the videos where they like shake. Yep. Uh, all of that off. Oh gosh, I think those videos are just like some of my favorite on the internet. <laughs> Uh, sorry. So they're not. They're there for the nectar, the the sweet stuff. Um, and the ones that you study are not making honey. Yep. In Canada, only the honeybees make the honey. There are a couple of other types that make a, a honey-like substance, but those are in the tropics, so we don't get those here. Um, but so I, I guess I should just say that bees also do use pollen as food for their uh, eggs. So. When these bees are laying their eggs, they're leaving behind some food. And a lot of that is pollen because pollen's where they get their protein. So although it may be accidental that they're doing it, they do keep some pollen and they kind of make it into a little pollen nectar mixture. And that's the bee bread that they leave behind. Uh, a protein shake for baby bees. Precisely. Okay. I think one thing that is difficult is that when people think about bees, they're like, yeah, I want honey. I love honey. We got to save the bees. But uh, your guys, are they're not producing honey. Nope. However, they are still doing a ridiculously important thing for the environment. Yeah, I think that a problem with all the Save the Bees campaigns that are happening right now is that they are honeybee focused. You know, it's about putting honeybee hives on urban rooftops and and things like that. And honeybees are actually not, not native to Canada. They are European and they can't survive here in Canada without our help. They need a beekeeper to keep them warm in the winter because they're not made for these cold temperatures to feed them in the winter and to take care of them throughout the summer because if they swarm and they leave the hive, then they're going to die in the winter. So, you know, honeybees are very important for producing honey. I love honey. And for, you know, they're kept for agriculture even more so than making honey right now. But our wild bees do a great job in agriculture as well if we let them and we encourage them. So it, it kind of has something to do with the way that we've been doing our agriculture hasn't been allowing them to do their job. And, and that means we have to bring more honeybees in. But if we switch that around, then our wild bees could probably do a much better job. Okay, all right. So we're focusing on this kind of neglected population of bees. But they're, they're, you said that they're wild, so it's gotta be hard to raise them, per se. Yes and no. So as well as our honeybees, which are domesticated for agriculture, we also have a couple species of bumblebees that are used for agriculture, largely in greenhouses. And there are two types of cavity nesting bees that are also used for agriculture. So we have the alfalfa leafcutter bee. And, and so there are big industries based on bringing these bees out to the alfalfa fields in these massive bee hotels, letting them do their thing, and then collecting all the little egg packets at the end of the summer, storing them in cool conditions, and then bringing them back out the next year. So... People have definitely found ways of managing these 
wild bees as well. But even if we don't manage them, if we just encourage the wild bees to come to our fields with nice flowers all year round, a place to live, then they can do a lot of the job without us having to pay for these bees in the first place. It's almost like you're proposing kind of a preventative approach. Yeah, something like that. Right, so we're, we're trying to make their habitats a little bit better, encourage their growth, encourage their offspring, so that we might not have to resort to these kinds of things in the future. That would be optimal. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. And that's, that's far away because yeah. you still don't know what plants they absolutely love to eat. Yeah, we don't 100% know how to encourage them and and aside from me, there's a lot of great research going on looking into how to build the perfect hedgerow to bring them into your field. And there's tons of research going on with how to do our pollination without needing to bring bees in. So, so it's definitely a long way down the road, but I think it's a goal that we should aim for. Yeah, and I, honestly, it seems like a ridiculously important goal at this point. Yeah. Okay, so then here is something that I, I guess I don't entirely fully understand. Uh, you you build these bee homes, right? Um, maybe you don't physically build them, but we have these bee homes, and they, they want to go into the homes, but why do they want to go into the home versus, like, a random nest somewhere else? Yeah, I, I mean, this is also an area that we're still trying to learn more about. Um, so a lot of the time it's about if there's a lot of better natural habitat, they won't bother with the nest at all. They're They're good with their plant stems, but... You know, if you set it up in a really good way and it's, you know, they're liking it, then they'll just see it as another kind of tube and they'll be happy to nest there, which is lucky for me. Once you get to the bees, uh, they have come into your home. They've lived there for a little. I'm assuming you, you let them kind of live for a little while, do their jobs. Yes. So the, the nests are out for the whole summer. OK, you collect them at the end of the summer. You look at whatever leftover eggs are in there, if there's any of the larvae in there. Uh, you bring your nest back to the lab. What are we doing next? Yeah, so our first job is to dissect them all. And so that means, uh, so my nest boxes are made with um, a piece of PVC pipe and then a piece of styrofoam inside that pipe that's got all these little cardboard tubes stuck into it. And so these cardboard tubes are the things that we want the bees to nest in. We have them in three different sizes for different size bees. And so I need to cut open each of these cardboard tubes in order to pull out the larvae and any pollen that's in there as well. And then that's the first step. And then I get to move on to the DNA barcoding part of my project. I was not trained as a molecular biologist, so I am still learning so very much about it. But basically there's there's three main steps I'm then taking and, and I'm doing this so that I can identify what kinds of bees were in my nest, what kind of wasps, and what kind of pollen they collected from because pollen is very hard to taxonomically identify uh, as are larvae. And so that's the way we're doing it. And, and so when I'm doing this DNA barcoding, I'm kind of going through three steps. The first is extracting the DNA. And so that's just mixing a bunch of buffers together to pull the DNA out of that egg larvae smoothie that I've made. And then we do the uh, PCR, polymerase chain reaction, which just amplifies the DNA a whole bunch. So we've got a, a little tube which, uh, with a ton of DNA in it. Uh, and then we can go about sequencing it. And I don't do the actual sequencing. We send that off. But once those sequences are done, I'll be able to see what kinds of bees and larvae were in my tubes, what they were eating. And hopefully that shows me some cool stuff. Yeah. All right. So you're you're sending them off. Someone is, you know, sequencing them. It's kind of like the 23andMe for bees. Legit. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You're trying to find the origin of the bees. You're trying to find what the bees are related to, what they're eating, and all of these kinds of things. Because when, when you send off these little tubes of DNA, you're also sending off a little bit of pollen. Mm-hmm. And the pollen gets sequenced, too. Yeah. So the cool thing that I'm doing is not just DNA barcoding, but it's called DNA metabarcoding. And so this means that I can sequence everything in one sample all together. Bees, larvae, pollen. And so the way that we can do that is by putting a specific tag on every single sample. So once we've tagged a sample, we can mix all the samples together. And then once they're sequenced, we know which tag belonged to which sample and kind of pull it all apart and see what happened. Wow. So then you get a real breadth of information. You you get to really know what's happening in that nest when you're able to do all of them at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be really cool. Yeah. All right. So then have you ever like gone to the field, got one of your bee boxes and found that there were no bees in them? Absolutely. So I think we we sent out 200 nest boxes last year and about half of them came back with something living in them, which means that half were empty still. And, and, you know, there can be a lot of reasons for that. You know, either habitat around was so good, the bees didn't need it, or maybe it was in a spot where there weren't that many cavity nesting bees, or it wasn't set up in a way that the bees liked. Maybe it was, you know, too shaded because they like the sun or Sometimes they get a little damp and then the bees aren't into that. So there can be a lot of reasons for it. Okay. And that must be pretty disheartening to, to, you know, send out all these things and only get half of them that have actually something living in them. And I'm assuming the way that you phrase that, the something living in them is not always cavity nesting bees. Well, I, I do not include spiders and earwigs in that count. Um, okay. All right. Fair. <laughs> those fair, are, fair, fair, fair. Those are a no. <laughs> Those are are hard now. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Oh, so you sent out 200 boxes. That seems like an insane amount. It is. Yep. And we are in the process right now of getting 200 more ready to go. So I am deep in the construction process. uh, (laughs) Oh, so uh, you're you're like at the hardware store. You're building. I am at the hardware store uh, picking up 10-foot lengths of PVC pipe and bringing those back down home on the highway and then cutting them up. Yep, it is. I'm, I'm in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, look at that. You you are, like, really DIYing for these cavity bees. You are putting heart into them. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so then uh, you, you make your boxes, you send them out, you get them back, you sequence them, you get that data, you get an email with a really big file that's a whole bunch of megabytes telling you what was in your sample. What are we doing after that? I have not gotten to that stage yet. So (laughs) thank you, COVID, for the major delays in lab work. (laughs) Love it. I am just at the stage where I'm ready to send off my 2019 samples to be sequenced. And so once those come back, uh, I'm hoping to layer those identities on top of where they were set up with the the landscape and, and see things there. And I also want to start making some uh, interaction networks to see, you know, if there's different types of bees nesting in the same nest, are they gathering the same flowers? Are they completely gathering different things? And so I want to see stuff like that as well. Okay, so you're going to just try to learn as much as you can from this data. Yeah, that was kind of a hard thing at the beginning of my master's. It's I didn't exactly have like super cut and dry predictions and hypotheses. Uh, it's just kind of, you know, what's out there? What are they eating? What are they doing? That's what we want to know. Yeah, and that's kind of tough to go at it without like a directive of sorts. Yeah, it was definitely a little tough, especially when we were 
trying to figure out where should we send these nest boxes to? What's the what's the best question we should be asking? And and I mean, luckily, this project's going to keep going for a, a while after me. Uh, there's going to be a new master's student in the fall who's going to do her own kind of thing with it. So it's really great. We'll be able to ask different kinds of questions as well. Yeah. And I'm assuming you already work with a team of people on this. You are not just the lone bee girl in the lab. <laughs> I mean, so I'm actually co-supervised. I have two supervisors. and uh, One of them is the bee guy, Dr. Nigel Rain on campus. His whole lab does different kinds of bee questions. And the other supervisor, Dr. Dirk Steinke, is a DNA barcoding guy. And I basically only work in Dirk's lab because that's where the barcoding stuff is. And I'm the only bee girl there. Everyone does different kinds of things. We got earthworms, we got freshwater, we got frogs. So that is a little bit, it is really cool to have so many different projects, but with similar workflows that we have to do. So everyone is very helpful there, especially to a newbie like me. Yeah, right. Because you're no barcode and expert, but you are, you're, you're then in that case, you're the B person of that lab. Yes, I am. <laughs> All right. So very esteemed, privileged kind of position Absolutely. being the B girl. Yeah. To wrap things up, we know the bees are important. Mm -hmm. You're not telling us anything that we haven't heard a million and a half times, but could you just give us a snippet, give us just kind of a, a global view of why what you are doing for these cavity nesting bees is important? Yeah, so I, I mean, a study of this size hasn't been done in Canada before. And and studies of any solitary wild bees are, are really, you know, they've only been happening in the last 10, 20 years. So we don't know enough. And, and to be able to do it on such a countrywide scale will hopefully give us at least a baseline of what we need to learn more about these bees going forward, uh, as well as to see how how their health is now, you know, you know, it's hard to do health without having a baseline. So I guess my favorite part is that this will be something going forward, even though I won't be a part of it then. I'm really excited that it'll be used then. And I guess scientifically, that's the part I'm most excited about. But I also love that this is a community science project. And so you know, I'm not setting up nests across Canada. I'm sending them to teachers at high schools and elementary schools who are setting them up at their homes because of COVID and, and at the schools this year. And, you know, they're bringing their students out and, and showing them that solitary bees exist, which people don't know about. So I didn't know about it. Yeah. <laughs> this is the part that I, that I love the most about these kinds of types of projects is that it's a citizen science of some sort. How could we get involved? If we're listening to this episode right now, how can we get involved in saving the bees? Yeah, so I mean, bees need two things. They need food, flowers, and they need a place to live. And so both of those things you can do right in your own backyard. It's, it's pretty easy. There are, is so much literature and, and helpful websites on native flowers that you can plant to attract bees. And... And so looking up what kind of flowers are suitable for your locality and, and the kind of conditions you have in your backyard is really useful. Making sure that there will be flowers that are blooming the whole summer. So from, you know, early spring to fall, because there are bees that are active that whole time. That's really helpful. So they've always got stuff to eat. And then in terms of giving them a place to live, I usually caution against using bee hotels in your backyard because they can become somewhat of a trap for parasites or you know, you have to clean it every year so that there isn't a fungal overload. But 
If you leave your garden a little bit messier in the fall, that is really helpful. And it's a great excuse to get out of lawn work, you know, just leave the sticks, <laughs> leave the twigs, leave the leaves. The bees love that. So you you could tell the, the HOA that like, oh, I have to leave my lawn messy. It's for the bees. Exactly. Yep. Get a sign for it. <laughs> okay. Bee habitat, you know, so the, <laughs> the, the neighbors aren't mad at you. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So it's perfect. You you have not only given us a way to help the environment, but you've given us a way to avoid doing lawn work. You're welcome. <laughs> that's that's honestly all you could ever hope from an episode about this is to get out of doing chores and doing something good at the same time. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. I have heard the phrase save the bees a million times, but you are the first person I've ever talked to that actually researches how to save the bees. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on here and talk about what I love. So thank you. Well, wasn't that chat with Sage Handler, the bees knees? You know, the puns, they're so easy to make, but they're so low quality. Sage talked to us about the cavity nesting bee, where it lives, and we're trying to find out what it wants to eat. It's certainly not as popular as its beautiful cousin, the honeybee, but it does play an incredibly important role in the ecosystem. So if you want to do your part to help save the bees, you can find out more information about what Sage is working on by visiting beesatschool.ca. That is B-E-E-S-A-T-S-C-H-O-O-L-S dot C-A. And now we've come to that part at the end of every episode of We Know Some Stuff where we admit that we don't know all the stuff. So Sage and I combed or honeycombed through this episode to find if we made any mistakes that needed correcting. And it turns out we didn't find anything that put us in a particularly sticky situation. However, with any and all science, we have to make sure that in the future, if we find out what we said was incorrect, we go out of our way to make sure that we clarify and recorrect ourselves. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. And to finish everything off, I went to a website and I read through 150 different bee puns and absolutely every one of them was terrible. And I'm just going to share the one that I thought was the, the worst. The entire pun is appearances can be deceiving. It's just, they just, I think they just went and, and they found a phrase that had the word B in it, and they just added an E to it. it. It's really bad. It's terrible. And the one that follows it is, say, these B puns aren't too shabby. Oh, it's it's so bad. I, I, that's it. We're done. Episode's over. Thanks for listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff. I put myself out of my misery at this point.